from the well of death, from the chasm of silence, from the abyss of pain, come the screams of empty, come the choruses of misery, come the dark tales. Masks of Halloween, Part 1 Mabel was only five when she decided that Halloween was her favourite day of the year. Becoming the centre of attention on one's birthday was nice, and of course, the toys and food during Christmas were also nice, but something felt even more magical about everyone collectively dressing up and pretending to be someone else for the night. She speculated for months and months about what she wanted to dress up as, and had eventually decided upon an astronaut. An astronaut? Dad said, almost choking on his eggs. Well, why can't she be an astronaut? Mummy asked. I suppose, Daddy said, looking contrite. I'll just miss her when she's up on Europa. He ruffled Mabel's hair. Her parents really leaned into her interest, happy and relieved that she finally had one. Of course, she was still much too young for horror movies, but they allowed her to watch dark fantasy kids' movies. They also indulged her by taking her to every haunted house spooky play and local event that was held during hours they weren't otherwise preoccupied with work. This one was called the Creatures of the Castle. It involved a group of around 50 people walking around the crumbling medieval walls of the ruinous and notoriously haunted Linford Castle. Instead of being led by a tour guide, they were allowed to wander at their own discretion. Stationed at different corners along the walls stood loud orators who told different sections of the tragic tale of Lord O'Donnell and Lady Shaw. The two families had been bitter rivals, fueled by the fact that much of their territories bordered each other's. So when the eldest daughter and the only son from the opposing families fell in love, it was a forbidden love, just like Romeo and Juliet, except this lasted for years instead of mere days. They wrote beautiful letters to each other and sent them via secret messengers. They were even able to meet at an inn, a halfway point between their two homes. Because her parents had no sons, Lady Shaw inherited her lands a decade later after both her parents were struck down by consumption. And by a marvellous coincidence, less than a moon cycle later, both Lord O'Donnell's parents suddenly fell ill and once they passed, the castle fell to him. Seemingly, the pair had a fairy tale ending as they wed under the pretense of a political marriage that was purely about imposing peace. The ceremony was held within the very courtyard of Linford Castle. However, Lord O'Donnell had a secret, because unlike Lady Shaw's, his parents had not died of natural causes. Instead, he had conspired against them and had delivered a lethal dose of arsenic to his mother's tea and his father's wine. Despite his newfound love, his guilt at those murders slowly drove him to madness as spirits appeared around the castle grounds. He killed Sam, the servant and healer who had provided the arsenic, as a tying up of loose ends. However, Lord O'Donnell became paranoid that Sam had informed others before losing his head. He worried that his servants and maids were all conspiring against him and took every dropped cup, cold meal and wrinkled bed as a slight. Each and every one of them met the chopping block or the gallows until it was only he, his lady, and his most trusted guards. Without the servants to maintain the castle, they experienced famine, infestation, and sickness. Finally, one night, during a brutal storm, Lord O'Donnell, sallow-cheeked, thin, 
and crazed, turned his wrath upon his lady. It's you, it's you who have angered God. It's you who have brought these punishments against us. It's you who have tainted me and led me down this foul path. She wept and pleaded for mercy before he stabbed her right in the heart with the very same letter opener he'd used to open her love notes so many years ago. When Lord O'Donnell emerged into the courtyard, deranged, his bedclothes sodden in blood as the rain saturated him, he declared them free of their curse. But the guards did what the Lord had feared from the beginning. They whispered. They conspired. They knew that if this continued, their fate would be the same as the servants, maids, and Lady Shaw. So they saw an end to it. The night after the lady was laying to rest, they all entered his bedchamber while he slept and plunged their swords through his quilts into his body. They stabbed him 111 times, one orator roared. The room was so drenched in blood that you can still see the splotches on the walls to this very day. Maybe this is a bit too much for her, Mummy said. Daddy shrugged. She's mature for her age. Mabel agreed with her daddy's assessment. She was dazzled by the bright lights and the coordination of the actors marching along the walls. There were also the dancers and the choirs down in the courtyard, pretending to be the fretting servants all standing by in horror as both the castle grounds and the Lord's mind went to rot. There were also puppets and performers dotted around the castle grounds, dressed as monsters and ghosts, depicting the various entities that had driven Lord O'Donnell mad. One of the set pieces involved a gang of spirits, howling as they rushed out of the drum tower like water from a burst pipe. The onslaught would ram into the unsuspecting group, mirroring an incident which had startled Lord O'Donnell so much that he'd almost tumbled to his death. Of course now, there was added safety netting to ensure this didn't happen to the paying customer. When they passed the aforementioned drum tower, Mabel and her parents were caught right in the middle of it. The water simile had been apt, because she did reel like she was being swept away by a powerful river as she lost grip of her daddy's hand. But she was still able to navigate through the flurry of white sheets to scramble and grasp the hand tightly again, like someone clinging to a life boy. And just as she'd woven her fingers through his, Daddy began tugging her along, pulling her free from the river of ghosts. That's all that she thought it was, that he was simply trying to get her out of the stampede of spirits. So she followed along, keeping her eyes fixed to the back of his brown hair and his familiar black sports coat. Eventually, she became aware of a second tower that he was leading her towards. This one was likely a twin to the opposite drum tower, though it was hard to tell because it was mostly rotted away. All that really remained of it was a dark, yawning mouth which led into the bowels of the castle walls. She was about to ask her daddy where they were going, when she heard the voices of her parents shouting, Mabel? 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 That was her mummy's voice. And yes, that was her daddy's voice. She gazed up now at the figure she'd mistaken for her daddy, absolutely certain that he sported the exact same coat and hairstyle. It was uncanny. He even wore the same golden watch and the same black leather shoes. Suddenly, the hand that Mabel held felt ice cold. Gazing down at it, she saw that it was far different from her daddy's hand. Her daddy's skin was a tan peach, whereas this was as white as flour. And perhaps she could have played some mental gymnastics to convince herself that this was all just a coincidence. But when she pulled away from the hand, its owner turned. 
He wore a mask which dripped loosely from his face. It was tilted, off kilter, as if it had been knocked askew in that flurry of ghosts. Had it been calibrated correctly, it would have been a perfect match for her daddy. But now, with it sitting how it was, she saw that the rims of the eyes beneath were as white as rat fur. The irises themselves almost glowed amber. She screamed and ran away. When her mummy and daddy caught her and noticed that she was upset, she tried to explain to them what she'd seen. And someone was just over there pretending to be you, she said at the end of her mad tsunami of words. Where? Daddy asked, looking over. When Mabel also glanced over, she saw that the man, the imposter, was no longer visible. But he was there. He was right there. Daddy ruffled her hair. It was just an actor, sweetie. Just a performance. They're just trying to scare you. That's their job. No, she said and began crying. Why wasn't he understanding? Oh, Richard, Mummy said. Maybe this was all too much for her. Daddy frowned. Yeah, let's get her home. And as he hoisted Mabel up, she saw, very faintly, like a twin set of guttering candle flames, that from within the shadows of the crumbling tower stared a set of orange eyes. Masks of Halloween Part 2 We all went to a haunted maze. It was Alfie's idea. I wrote back in the group chat, telling them definitely not, but Alfie actually came right into my parents' house, climbed the stairs, marched right into my bedroom and said, Tough tits, you're going, Eddie. I was in my dressing gown. I insisted that I didn't want to go. It sounds stupid, I said. It doesn't, Alfie said. Now you're getting dressed and you're coming with us. I'm sick of you wallowing in despair. If you're ever going to get over Nave, you have to start doing things. Fine, I said. Alfie crossed his arms and began tapping his foot. Would you give me some privacy to get changed, unless you'd like to see my cock? Don't know what you're getting so upset about when there's not much to see. But all the same, he left me to it. When I got out to the red Peugeot that belonged to Alfie's mum, I saw that Toby and Rob were there too. Alfie began driving. He nearly crashed into several cars on their way and insisted that it was their fault for failing to indicate. They all had indicated, in actual fact, but I didn't point this out. Where the fuck is this place anyway? I asked. You may settle yourself down, Edworth, Toby said. Aye, it'll be a while yet, Rob said. It's on a farm just past West Castle, Alfie said. Haven't been to it before right enough, but apparently they do this every year. It was an hour in the car, listening to their shitty trance tracks and even shittier hip-hop beats. We spent about 40 of those minutes on the motorway and the other 20 navigating dodgy rural roads. When we landed at the farm, we were brought into a glassy reception centre where we had to sign forms to enter the maze. It was all the usual, if you fall and break your leg, you can't sue us, sort of crap. We waited our turn at the entrance of the maze, which happened to be situated right next to the exit, so we were able to watch a group of girls emerging. Two of them were nervously laughing in what seemed like possible relief, while one was red-faced and silent, and another was pale and silent. Did you see their faces? Rob said. It must be extreme in there, Toby said. I folded my arms. I can't believe I could have been watching Scrubs reruns instead of doing this. Oh, would you give over, Eddie? Alfie said. Sure, when you're done with this you can go back to being miserable, Rob said. We were soon signalled to enter the maze. Immediately, I saw why it had been recommended to wear welly boots, because the ground here was extremely marshy. 
Sometimes it sucked your feet in, while other times it was as hard and as slippery as ice. Rob had fallen on his ass within the first minute. Within the first 20, we'd all hit the ground at least once, while Rob had racked his total up to four. So we were all soon caught, bruised and laggard in mud. Great, I said, ripped my good fucking jeans. See, what did I tell you, Alfie said. Loads of fun. It was a while before the first scare. Soon, I had become aware of someone following us. When I glanced over my shoulder, I saw a fellow stumbling along the trail. He wore bad corpse makeup and his arms were extended like a retro version of a zombie. Alfie, Rob and Toby all sped up, gasped and made excitable noises, but it seemed to me to be born out of awkward politeness more than any genuine fear. I simply kept walking and when the corpse realised that they wouldn't get a rise out of me, they faded away to attempt their luck with the next passing group. It was all the usual shite from there. There was a skeleton that was slingshot out from the bushes along a clothesline until it settled into the middle of our path. There was a pig doctor holding aloft a decapitated pig head. There was a speaker in the bushes blaring out banshee screams. There was a large man trapped in a cage wielding a chainsaw. And I thought that perhaps we'd endured the worst of it when a fellow with knives as fingers pursued us and I lost the others as they scattered. Yeah, not scared. I said as the knife-wielding actor pursued me. Just play along, you twat, he mumbled before tottering away. In search of the others, I veered around the corner and thought I'd encountered a dead end, containing nothing remarkable, until I heard a voice. Come here, Eddie. I stopped, freezing to the spot. The voice was odd, distorted. I thought that it was playing from speakers, similar to the banshee screams. But how did it know my name? Of course, I thought. I had signed my name on that form back at the reception centre. Someone had obviously read it from that and had a hidden camera stationed somewhere and were just trying to freak me out. Fair play, because they actually got me with that one. I had a tingle at the back of my neck and everything. The voice repeated, Come here, Eddie. It's okay. I halted. The tingling intensified because I suddenly realised that I recognised the voice. It'll all be okay, it repeated. Neve? I said, and as I stepped towards the dead end, I spotted the figure within the bushes. She was so far back that the shadow mostly hid her, but at the same time, I knew it was her. I almost laughed. What the hell are you doing here? Did Alfie put you up to this? I came here to see you, Yeti. Only you. I stepped towards her, and she receded further into the dark hedges. Aren't you going to come out? I asked. She shook her head. No, you come to me, Eddie. Come to me. It'll all be okay. I was about to step towards her, when Alfie grabbed me by the shoulder and said, There you are. When I gazed back into the dark hedges, I saw that she was gone. I started panting and explaining to him what I'd seen, and he told me to shut the fuck up about Neve already. I tried to fight him off, but Rob and Toby helped haul me out of there. I can only remember flashes of what came after, as if I was blind drunk or something. I admit that I'd become completely hysterical at that point, although I do remember drawing many concerned gazes from the next group that were about to enter the maze. If I were in a better, more coherent frame of mind, I might have yelled to warn them that there was a real monster in there, lurking in the bushes. And maybe I could have led a normal life after that, 
Maybe I could have explained it away. Maybe I wouldn't be so messed up were it not for what happened next. When Alfie dropped me off home that night, I got into the house and found my mother standing in the kitchen. Her face was glistening, soaked with tears. What happened? I asked her. But she just wrapped her arms around me. I'm so sorry, Eddie. When I finally extracted the information from her, I learnt that Neve had gone out for a walk last night and had been missing ever since. They'd been out searching for her all morning, and then, in the afternoon, they had found her body in the botanic gardens, wedged head first into a bush. <laughs> <laughs> 